Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. So convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. This is the word of the Lord. So Paul kind of uncharacteristically, I would say, kind of in an unusual way, is in prison, and as Pastor Chris highlighted last week, not thinking a whole lot about himself. He's thinking about the Philippians, and he's thinking about the Philippians a lot. We saw that last week. He is praying for them. He's writing this letter. He's wanting to encourage them. Kind of unusual for someone chained to a guard in prison in conditions that we wouldn't even really allow in this country. And this continues today. In the passage we just heard, what we hear Paul expressing in the words is that he is very concerned for the Philippians. He continues to be thinking more about them than about his own current situation or struggles. 
And specifically, he really wants them to have peace about three things. The first thing he knows that it must be on their minds is this whole reality of him being in prison. Right? He's a traveling evangelist. His whole reason for being on the earth is to travel throughout the ends of the known world preaching the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord everywhere he can possibly go and to as many Gentiles as he possibly can. That is his whole reason for living. But he can't do any of that right now. He's stuck. He's locked up. He's chained probably to a prison guard, dependent on people like Timothy and Epaphroditus to bring him food, water, changes of clothing. He is completely thwarted and constrained and unable to do the very thing that he lives and breathes to do. He's like a carpenter with no hammer. He's like a musician without her instruments. He's like an artist without a canvas. And yet, in the midst of that, he wants the Philippians to know that this is all being used and worked together for good. That what anyone might have meant for evil, as Joseph's words were in Genesis, God is using for good. Because as a result of Paul being in prison, many of the, the uh, brothers and sisters in the community where he's in prison have been emboldened. They're more courageous than ever. They're more fearless than ever in proclaiming the gospel. So Paul wants them to know, I'm in prison, but it's okay. Christ is being proclaimed. The second thing he wants them to know is not only is he in prison, but as a result of his imprisonment, some people out there, we're not sure who they are. They're rivals of Paul. They might be from another type of sect. They might be people who are not at all in any way associated with the Jesus movement. Whoever they are, they are using this, Paul's imprisonment, as an opportunity to stir up trouble for Paul, to kind of live out their own selfish motives, selfish ambitions. They're in some kind of competition with Paul. And this is an opportunity for them to get their agenda out there, to get their name out there, while Paul is locked up. So Paul wants the Philippian community to know he's aware of this. He knows about these people out there using the name of Christ out of selfish motives. And again, he wants them to know it does not matter. It does not matter. Because whether I'm in prison or whether I'm free, whether by pure motives or impure motives, Christ is being proclaimed. Christ is being proclaimed. And that is the bottom line for Paul. Because of that, because of that reality, even while in prison, he says twice and very emphatically, he is overflowing with joy. He is rejoicing. He is filled with joy. He's also filled with hope. The word he uses to describe the kind of hope and eager expectation he has is a word that, that brings up a picture of someone standing on their tippy toes with their 
neck outstretched, looking forward in anticipation to good things coming. He has joy, he has hope, he has confidence that in and through all of this, God is going to work everything out for his deliverance, for his salvation. And then there's a third thing that Paul knows must be on the hearts and minds of the Philippians, and he wants to address that openly, honestly, and frankly. And he says, the other thing you must be concerned about is that I might die. At any moment, a prison guard, a prison official, a Roman official could walk into the place where Paul is being held and say, come with me. They could hold some kind of mock trial. They could send Paul to be beaten and tortured and then executed, just like that whether by crucifixion, like Jesus, whether by some other horrific way of death, that is the reality Paul is living in at this moment. At any moment, this breath, this day, could be his last. And he is still in the midst of that, filled with joy, filled with hope, filled with confidence, yet... There's something else going on, and, and he kind of opens a window for us into his mind and heart, and he tells us one more thing. He says, I'm torn. I have mixed emotions when I think about this, this very close and present reality of my death. I, I'm ambivalent. I'm pulled in two directions. And that is because, for Paul, to be alive is to be in and with Christ. He says, for me to live is Christ. Everything about Paul's life has meaning and purpose and value because everything about Paul's life is done in the very presence of the Spirit of Jesus with him, moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day. For me to live is Christ, he says, and to die is gain. See, because for Paul, if in prison, he can experience the reality of the presence of Jesus Christ with him. He knows that if he has to leave because death comes calling, that for Paul that will mean more Christ, an even deeper and fuller and richer and truer experience of Jesus' presence, of Jesus' mercy, grace, fullness, and love. So for Paul, to live is Christ, to die is even more Christ, even more Christ. So in essence, what Paul says, although not using these exact words, is, I would be better off dead. I would be better off dead. Now, if you had a friend who was going through a difficult time, or family member, and they said, you know, I just, 
I'm really going through a really, really challenging time. I just feel like I'd be better off dead. What would you say? Don't talk that way. No, shh. It's okay. Everything's going to work out. Is Paul suicidal? Is Paul depressed? Paul must be really just sick and kind of at the end of his rope. He's just really kind of ready to give up the ghost and just head on home to Jesus. He's tired of all this suffering, right? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think we're getting a glimpse into the very fuel, the very fire that kept Paul going in easy times and in difficult times like these. In 2009, there was a study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. In this study, they took a large sample of people, all of whom unfortunately had what's called terminal cancer. Now, what they meant by terminal cancer is not cancer, just a diagnosis of cancer, but people who were in the very, 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 very end stages of a terminal cancer diagnosis, meaning they were in a place where all medical professionals were in agreement that there was no more treatment that would bring any kind of benefit to them. So no more chemo, no more radiation, no more surgeries were going to do anything to extend life or even enhance quality of life. So they were at the point of no return. With this group of people, terminal cancer patients, they gave them all a survey, a questionnaire, to attempt to measure how religious they claimed to be, they reported to be, how faithful, how much an ongoing daily practice of faith was a part of their lives. And here's what they found. They found that the folks who scored highest, saying, I am so, faith is such a big part of my life, prayer, living out my faith daily to day, day to day is so, so, so important to me, were the same people who were most likely, against all medical advice, to insist on that next radiation treatment, a one more round of chemo, one more time under the surgeon's knife. The more faith, the more they wanted everything done. But that's not all they found. They also found the people who rated really low on saying they were religious or devout or faithful. Surprisingly, they found that those folks were the ones who were most likely to say, no thanks. I've had enough of that chemo. I've had enough of that radiation. I'm ready to spend every moment I have doing the things that I want to do, being with friends and family, doing things that give my life meaning. I'm ready to go whenever it's my time. Now, this doesn't make sense, right? People who report being very faithful, prayerful, practicing faithful people, you would guess, are believing that there's something good after death, that there's 
more life to come, better life to come, eternal life coming. And when they got to that point, they would be likely to open their hands and release themselves, knowing that Jesus is going to catch them. But in fact, they found the reverse. The opposite was true. There is in our culture probably a lot of things going on here to account for those results. I think as Christians, we are rightly very pro-life people. Life is an incredible gift from God. Every single breath we get is an incredible gift from God. Every morning we wake up and we're able to come here is an incredible gift of God. And yes, we should do everything, everything we can to protect, to preserve, to hold on to life, because life is good. Yet there's also a very pervasive cultural phenomenon that I think possibly many Christians, many of us, many faithful people surely in this study have maybe been duped by. And that is our culture is very death-denying and youth-worshipping. Right? You can only turn on the TV for moments to see some kind of product that's going to help you be, feel, look younger. That's what we're all about. That's what the whole, many industries are fueled on that hope to stay younger, to avoid death. We don't talk about death much. Paul's kind of weird in this sense. Paul and, and people like him might be called kind of morbid and dark and depressing to talk so freely and openly about your death. So that's going on in our culture, and it's been well documented. Gobs of books written about how we're a death-denying culture. But then there's also this other reality. I'd, I'd think of it more as a psychological reality, is that thinking about our death is actually one of the most challenging psychological tasks for any human being. Psychologists call the, this act of trying to think about or contemplate or plan for your death the equivalent of staring at the sun. You can really only do it for so long before you kind of have to look away and just, I can't think about it anymore. It's too overwhelming. It's too scary. But at the same time, our culture is starving for examples, people to look to, models of how to live well, suffer well, and even die well. Not too long ago, several years ago, there was a book that spent hundreds of weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. It was called Tuesdays with Maury. Many of you probably read it. It was very wildly popular. A young reporter, Mitch Albom, went and spent Tuesday mornings with his mentor as his mentor was dying from Lou Gehrig's disease. And every Tuesday morning, they talked about the reality of the changes and the suffering caused by the changes in his body, the reality of his approaching death, openly and frankly. And all the book was was just a, a transcription 
of those conversations they had together. And people ate it up. Not too many years after that, again, wildly popular book called The Last Lecture. Hundreds of weeks at the top of the New York Times bestseller list, Randy Posh, a computer science professor at Carnegie Mellon University, had been asked to participate in a tradition at the university that really had nothing to do with death or dying, but it was called the last lecture. And it was basically designed as an opportunity for professors to give their ideal lecture, what they would like to say to their colleagues and students if they just had free reign to say everything they wanted to say. Well, as it turns out, Randy Posh found out one week prior to his already scheduled date to give the last lecture that his pancreatic cancer that had been treated was back. And he had just been told he had months to live. So for Randy, his last lecture took on a whole new meaning. And he gave that lecture basically as a telling his life story, all the life lessons he had learned. And the lecture was not directed to his colleagues, his students, anyone who was in the auditorium that day. The punchline of the YouTube video that was posted that went viral and then the book that followed was that his lecture was for his young daughters, who he knew would grow up without a father. More recently, what about our fascination with Steve Jobs' illness and death? As I last, last checked on the um, YouTube clip of Steve Jobs speaking to the graduating class at Stanford University, one of the speeches where he talked very openly and frankly about his understanding of his illness and his upcoming death, six million hits. People are starving for examples of what it looks like to suffer and suffer well, what it looks like to live out grace under the greatest pressure of all, the pressure of our mortality. And you know, for most of Christian history, actually the world really did look to the church for those examples, not only how to live well, but how to suffer well and even how to die well, as strange as that might sound to our 21st century ears. Think of the early martyrs in the early centuries of the church, one of whom we know through the book of Acts, the martyr Stephen. As they were dying, what would be for us just horrifically graphic, violent deaths, their words were recorded. Their words that spoke of visions, of seeing the heavens opened, of seeing Jesus' arms opened wide, ready to welcome them into his presence, saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. And these words of the martyrs became an example for disciples who may at any moment have to face that same kind of suffering themselves. In the Middle Ages, when the bubonic plague was rampant and people were dying in droves, they looked to the church to show them how to live, suffer, and die well. And in the Middle Ages, one of the best-selling books of all times was this little pamphlet 
called the Ars Moriendi. It was a series of, of woodcut drawings, paintings. Ars Moriendi meaning, meaning the art of dying. And it depicted a faithful Christian as he went through the stages of illness and then death, holding on to hope, holding on to courage, and holding on to faith, and resisting the temptations to lose hope, to lose faith, to lose courage. And this became the model for believer and non-believer alike in how to live in terrible times of suffering. Following that, the tradition of memento mori, remembering your death. Martin Luther himself is said to have worn a ring with an emblem of a skull on it, not because he was morbid or suicidal or depressed, but because he wanted to be reminded every moment of every day that time is short, life is fragile. None of us know how many more days we have here. And that knowledge, that awareness, like it says in Psalm 90, teach us, Lord, to number our days that we may acquire a heart of wisdom. That knowledge is meant to give us wisdom, to use our time well, to not waste it because it's precious. So there are two kind of phrases about evangelism as we look at how to occupy the gospel, how to live out our faith. Two phrases that I, I kind of like very well. I'm sure you've heard the first one. You are the only Bible some people will ever read. It's true. Your life, who you are, is all that some people are ever going to know about what Christianity is about. The other one you might not have heard, or you might have, it's attributed most often to St. Francis of Assisi, and it says, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. So you get it. <laughs> when we think of evangelism, when we think of sharing our faith, isn't the first thing that comes to mind, oh my gosh, do I have enough Bible verses memorized? Do I, what, what if they asked about this? Do I know the theology of that and how to explain? And gosh, have I, I need to practice my testimony. I need to get it all polished and ready so that when they ask, I'm ready. And yes, 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 all those things are true and good and wonderful. However, if we were to make a pie chart, one of those graphs of our lives, and specifically that, that was going to measure the time spent evangelizing with words versus with our lives, I think for myself, and I'm guessing for most of us, it would be one slim little slice of the pie is devoted to those times when we are sharing our faith with words, with Bible verses, with testimony, in all those kind of traditional ways. The rest of the pie would be our lives, the way we live, moment by moment, day by day, that preaches loud and clear 
what we really believe, what we really trust in, where we've really placed our bets. So in that sense, there's really never a moment when we're not sharing our faith. It's happening all the time. So what do you do when you're thwarted? You've got your plans all set up. It's laid out, step one, step two, step three. But then suddenly, everything falls through. Not only does it not go the way you planned, it's kind of going in the opposite direction or some other sideways direction, you're thwarted. And it's not only that, but it's this very thing. What do you do when you sense that the very reason you're put on earth, your calling, your reason for being, your whole life mission is suddenly put on hold? And you're not sure if it's ever going to be given back to you again. What do you do when you get that stop sign? Well, whatever it is you do in that moment, just like the Apostle Paul, his imprisonment, whatever kind of prison place you find yourself in and your response is how you're sharing the gospel. What do you do when you're opposed? You're down and out, and those other people who've always been out to get you use it as an opportunity, and they are going to be out to get you now. They are talking trash about you. They are stirring up trouble for you. They are opposing you. And you know it's out of, just like Paul, selfish ambition, whatever, whatever it's about. They are not on your team, and you feel it. What do you do when you're opposed like that? Whatever it is you do, you're sharing your faith. In that moment, you're sharing your faith. And now the hard one. What do you do when the time comes when you're faced with death? Death with a capital D. Your own, someone else's. What do you do when it seems that the end is near? Whatever it is you do, you're sharing your faith. And then there are all those little d deaths, the lowercase d deaths, all those losses that are a part of being a human being in this fallen world. The death of our career, our job, loss of job, death or loss of our marriage, friendships, betrayals, or there's more intangible things, death of hope, death of a sense of belonging, a sense of safety, death of a sense that all is right in the world, death of our innocence. What do we do with all of those deaths, those losses? How do we live in response to that? Whatever it is, 
We're sharing our faith. How did Paul do it? He tells us pretty clearly in verse 19. It's really no magic secret. He says simply that he knows that through their prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus, that's what is empowering him to witness in this darkest, most difficult struggle of his life. It's just that, just that easy and it's just that hard. Prayer and an ever-present, ongoing, lived experience of Jesus Christ, the risen Lord and Savior of the universe, with him right there, right then, in the prison. It's no wonder the prison guards knew that he was in jail because he was a Christian, because whatever guard was chained to Paul, that guard was chained actually to Paul and to Jesus. Because wherever Paul was, Jesus was there. And Paul lived that and breathed that and experienced that, and that was real to Paul, that relationship with Jesus. For Paul, Jesus was right here and right there and there and next to you and right by you and there and there and there and right here, closer than your breath closer than your skin with you, really, every moment, every hour, every day, with you, with love, with grace, with mercy, with Paul, with love, with grace, with mercy, with hope, with joy, with courage, with strength, everything he needed, he had it. Because Jesus was right there with him, giving it to him generously, everything he needed. So Paul laid it out for us, really no secret, prayer and a deep abiding awareness that Jesus was really there with him, that he wasn't alone. So rather than talk about it anymore, I'm going to pray for us. And then I'm going to do something very, very wild and crazy, but I know you all can handle it. After I pray, before I close the prayer, I'm going to leave a time of silence. It's not going to be that long, but it's going to feel like three years. Because <laughs> we really are uncomfortable with silence. And in that time of silence, I want you to just do one thing and one thing only. And that is taking a moment to turn your awareness to the presence of Jesus with you right here, right now, closer than your breath, closer than your skin, 
close, here with open arms to give you everything you need to live through whatever is coming your way. I'm going to pray for you using Paul's prayer we looked at last week. Lord Jesus, we pray that our love for you may abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight so that we may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for your glory and praise. Jesus, thank you for the promise in your word that you are near to the brokenhearted and save those whose spirits are crushed. In Jesus' name, amen.